You're listening to episode 13 of the Alan Gray podcast. My name is Tamarin Lamb, head of retail at Alan Gray, and I am your host for this episode. I actually hosted our first episode for 2023, and I introduced that podcast by asking whether 2022 was going to be remembered as the end of the decade of free money distorting markets. At the time, I'm quite glad that our conclusion was that it was maybe too soon to tell. Because if I look since that date, the S&P 500 is up about 15%, the Nasdaq's up about 36%, and it seems like general excitement about AI in particular is behind the rally in the so-called Magnificent Seven, which is Apple, Amazon, Google, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. And the combined weight of those seven shares now is about 28% of the S&P 500. And when we think locally, it seems that the attention has shifted from Andre Dureta's abrupt departure from ESCOM to the outcome of the political elections next year, and maybe on a more positive or maybe hopeful stance is on the outcome of the Rugby World Cup. But as I listen to my own description of the environment, I'm a little reminded of the saying that as much as things change, the more they stay the same. Certainly the environment always seems to present uncertainties, and our job is to navigate through that and to find the best opportunities on your behalf. And to do that, and to discuss that environment and those opportunities, I'm joined by my colleagues, portfolio managers, Tim Acker and Graham Forster. Tim is based in Cape Town at Alan Gray. He's one of the portfolio managers on our balanced and equity funds. And Graham Forster is based in Bermuda from Orbis, and he is one of the portfolio managers who directs capital in the Orbis Global Equity, International and Optimal Strategies. And I'm going to start off with Graham. Firstly, welcome to Cape Town. It's always a pleasure to have you here. And actually, this is your first Alan Gray podcast. So I'm going to start off with an easy question, which is maybe you can explain to us how, as a Welshman <laughs> with a degree in epidemiology, you ended up managing investments and living in Bermuda. I'm glad you mentioned the Welshman ahead of the World Cup there. That was, uh, that was well done. Strategic. <laughs> So as you say, I grew up in Wales in a small town called Wrexham, which has become famous now through the football football team, which is owned by Ryan Reynolds, which is a you know real pickup for for that community. I went there to Oxford to study mathematics, and then, as you said, to Cambridge to do a PhD in mathematical epidemiology. I think that's a well-known field now through COVID fame, modelling disease spread and control of disease. And from there, I joined Orbis in 2006 in London. And then I moved to Bermuda in 2012. As you say, I'm responsible for the international strategy, which is the non-US long-only strategy, the optimal strategy, which is a market neutral fund, which has, you know, goes in and out of favor as the market goes up and down. You know, those types of strategies were very popular in the 2000s when we had a very choppy, volatile market and less popular in the last 10 years when you know everything was going up as we'll talk about i think you know we're entering into that type of environment again where things are a little bit more choppy and uh, i'm responsible for a piece of that global strategy which is our flagship fund so tim i'm going to give you an easy first question as well and this is obviously not your first time in the podcast but on the previous two occasions you were actually hosting so I think my question for you is, you've been in Alan Gray now for 10 years. And as I mentioned, obviously, one of the portfolio managers on balance and equity. What do you think 
is different uh, about working and managing investments at Allen Graham? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a special place. I've only managed money here. Obviously, you look at how other people manage money and I think it, it is dangerous to say sort of we're the best in the world and our way is the right way and everyone else is wrong and we have this magical sort of special source philosophy. So you, you want to be humble and sort of realize that there are lots of smart people in the world and lots of people, you know, people do things differently and there are other successful investors as well. But sort of that being said, I do think we're sort of a little bit unique and it's it's always nice to compare or talk to our colleagues at Orbis when they're here. So we're two different firms, but we have the same philosophy, obviously, right? We have the same founder and and the people think quite similarly. So it's interesting when you when you draw those comparisons, you kind of realize how we are different in some ways. And people who have been clients for a while, who know the firm well, obviously, Alan Gray is celebrating 50 years this year, which is, is a nice milestone, might sort of know what some of those hallmarks are. So sort of this you know, classical long-term investing, taking a longer-term approach. The markets have become increasingly short-term focused. So it is quite a, quite a big differentiator. We tend to focus very much on the value of businesses. So thinking sort of what is something actually worth, not just thinking about a share as a piece of paper or a number that moves up and down in the newspaper or on the news. And those might seem kind of obvious things, or surely everyone does that, but it's, it's actually surprisingly unusual, I think. When I was introducing the podcast, I talked about what we were discussing at the beginning of this year. And I think in our presentations, we've said, you know, we do believe that 2022 was almost a regime change. It was the hoped for end of a decade of free money spurring equity markets. If I could ask you, what, what surprised you as this year has unfolded? If I look at kind of how the markets have corrected, how do you explain that? How do you explain what looks like kind of a real burst of old style exuberance? Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting start to the year. What surprised me? Nothing in the sense that I think over short periods of time, anything can happen. And, um, you know, nothing works in a straight line. And we've been through plenty of periods in the past where we've seen exuberance. And I think, you know, what, what was the big talking point has been not AI and machine learning. It's been a piece of that, particularly large language models, which erupted through uh, chat GPT. That is a piece of a much broader sort of AI puzzle, which has been rumbling in the background for years and years and years, right back to the 70s and, and the advent of computers. So it's a continuation of uh, technological advancement. But then you see these pockets of excitement which pop up with new, you know, interesting, especially consumer products, which capture the imagination. And I think that's been the story, obviously, of the last six months. I think you have to take a step back, though, and, and look at what the biggest story is, the biggest cycle. And that is, you know, we're coming off this enormous top, which we've talked about before, in terms of easy money, as you said. You know, when you look at those, those are the big cycles that you really have to pay attention to, rather than the little ripples in my opinion, um, because we've seen these things before throughout the 60s, where we had a period of very easy money and very low real interest rates. We saw them in the 90s, and we've just seen another decade, which has been even larger than, than I think, you know, those two put together, in my opinion. And when you see those cycles sort of get to the crescendo, as we saw in, in during COVID, I think there are natural self-correcting mechanisms, which lead to a different type of environment, which I think we're moving into today. So maybe I could follow up that what are those natural self-correcting mechanisms? Because that's certainly the questions 
Clarence, ask me. Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of people point to specific things like deglobalization. You know, they'll have some narrative around a specific element which is driving a change in regime. I think these these are naturally correcting from the sense that when you have easy money, that leads to you know, essentially the price of time or interest rates or long long rates or however you want to describe it. Those sort of rates going very, very low, which is essentially a discount rate for all assets. And it especially impacts what I would term as long duration assets or growthier assets. Because you know if you have a company where the free cash flow or the cash flow is more in the distant future than it is in the today, uh, they're not generating money today, they're spending money today to generate it in the future. And uh, if the discount rates are low, then the value of those businesses goes up a lot because the free cash flow in the future is actually worth something very similar to the free cash flow today because, you know, there is no discount rate or that discount rate is low. And so what that drives is speculation. And you see the share prices of those longer dated assets rising. And that means all the capital is going to those areas of the market. And you, it leads to a, a kind of giant sucking sound of capital in the short duration assets, which are typically the old economy businesses, like you know pure materials businesses, like energy businesses, like industrial businesses, the real sort of core of the economy, you know they don't benefit as much. So no capital is going to those areas, and that leads to a shortage of supply, a general shortage of supply at the base of the economy, and that leads to more of an inflationary impulse, which we're seeing. And then that leads to a reversion of monetary policy back to more normal levels. And that, that cycle can last for decades. You know, you can have you know, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of easy money, and then it starts to move in the other direction. And I think that's a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal for asset pricing generally. You know, uh, real estate, private equity, venture capital, uh, equity, everything, you know, that we own. And it's a big deal for the types of assets that you should be looking for in those types of environments. So why would you call old economy assets short duration? An old economy asset, when you think about those types of businesses, they're quite mature. And if the management teams of those businesses are acting rationally, because those businesses are mature and they don't have these great reinvestment opportunities to grow very quickly, they should be paying out a lot of the free cash flow that they generate today back to shareholders. Today. Today and over the next few years, right? And all they need to be doing is reinvesting enough to grow at a rational pace, you know, given the, the return on capital profile of those businesses. So they're short duration in the sense that you're generating a lot of the free cash flow today and that a lot of that is coming back to you as a shareholder, as opposed to a growth business, which should rationally be reinvesting in the business to grow, to generate those cash flows in the future. And the trouble is when the monetary policy is too easy, the share prices are too high and, and everyone gets a little bit too excited and they throw too, there's too much money going into those areas. And that's a recipe for generally for disaster. You know, in terms of uh, when you're thinking about what we do, contrarian investing, you actually want to go where the capital isn't going. And that's where you get the higher return on capital typically and when you get the higher returns. So, Graham, sort of for us in South Africa to unpack what you said, it seems like assets where a lot of the value is out in the future. Those are the kind of things that are, seem quite expensive if we look around the world. So growth type assets, for example, you've mentioned, or these AI stocks, those things seem quite expensive. And then on the flip side, you, you said old economy stocks, things that are generating a lot of cash, but maybe they're not growing that much. Those tend to be the kind of things that seem quite cheap to you. And so when we're looking at South African assets, for me, a lot of 
the shares we can buy fit in that second category. So we have a lot of businesses that aren't really growing much, but they're paying decent dividends. Does that kind of fit with your framework of what's happening in the world, that those are the kind of things, these African type shares, that probably probably would be cheap in the current environment? Does that make sense? I think that's exactly right. If you, you know, you look at the environment today versus 20 years ago, you know, when I joined the business, people were really excited about the growth prospects of places like South Africa, Vietnam, Indonesia, across the emerging world, there was a growth story. And that growth story, and I don't want to sort of go specifically into South Africa, because, uh, you know, each emerging market is very, very unique. Uh, but generally speaking, in regions like Indonesia, etc., the population growth hasn't changed, right? The story is still there in terms of population growth, productivity growth, low per capita wealth, and, you know, how that could evolve over the next 5, 10, 20 years. The prospects there are much better than in the developed world, where populations are generally not growing as quickly, and they're much more mature, productivity growth isn't as high. So this, the story hasn't changed in terms of the underlying fundamentals of those countries. But what has changed is the investor appetite to invest in those areas, and therefore you get much lower share prices, number one. And number two, which is equally important, if the capital isn't coming in, either from foreigners or, or locally, the competition is lower in those regions. So if you've got good dominant businesses in those areas of the world, they can actually generate quite high returns on capital, which is, you know, unlike 20 years ago where the capital was flying in, uh, that the share counts were going up, equity was being issued rather than um, share counts going down. So you should have solid growth in those regions from the GDP itself, from the companies themselves, you know, if they're well positioned. And you don't pay a lot to own those businesses, and you're getting a lot of cash out of them. Specific emerging markets are different, but I'd be quite bullish on you know, that type of asset class. Graham, it's always much easier to understand the theory if you give an example. So, so when you say you'd be bullish on that kind of asset class, what, what name would jump out in the portfolio today that fits that bill? So one example could be uh, Astra, which is a dominant industrial business based in Indonesia in particular, and they have been operating in that region for a long, long time. Uh, they have a very sav- savvy management team who know the region well. And uh, you know, as I said, unlike 20 years ago, they're uh, finding it much easier to operate from a competitive sense. So you know, there's less capital coming in. Competitors have died off slowly over the, over the, sort of the last 10 years as capital has dried up. And so their return on capital has been going up. The growth rates are still solid, 10% plus growth rates, which is pretty impressive and has been for some time. But what's most interesting is the shares have gone from you know, 20, 30 times earnings when everyone was very excited to today you are paying sub 10 times earnings, which is incredible for that type of business. Because their share price is low, they're actually you know they're taking that signal from the market and they're not reinvesting a lot of their you know capital their free cash flow to grow you know they're able to grow at a decent rate with the amount that they're investing but they're paying a lot out so you're getting a eight percent normalized dividend yield as well on top of that growth rate it should give you a reasonably robust high teen return which is quite incredible you know in the current environment which is generally quite frothy so you've both said that you know in both the local and 
offshore environments we're finding maybe shorter duration or higher yielding for want of a better description value assets more attractive and i get that a lowering of the discount rate disproportionately favors growth which is further out than growth which is closer uh, the flip side of higher yielding stocks is that people are often concerned about whether or not the dividend and free cash flow is sustainable and so that's why they're getting priced at a discount. So maybe Tim, I'll start with you. Give us an example, a couple of examples of what are the stocks locally that fit within that category? And then, you know, picking one, why do you think that the yields are sustainable? Yeah, no, I think it's an excellent point, Tamron. There is this risk that if you say, oh, I'm just going to buy sort of the higher dividend yield stocks, you know, those might be lower quality businesses because there's, there's a reason they're not reinvesting because they don't have opportunities. So they're mm. just paying out a dividend. And, you know, sometimes people look at it and say, oh, 8% dividend yield, that's great. But it's only going to last for two or three years because this is a business in decline. Mm. So you definitely want to avoid those. And I think particularly in SA today, that's a big risk because we do have a very tough economy that's not really growing. We have lots of businesses that are under serious pressure. So there are, you know, businesses today that are not going to be around in 10 years. And of course, you want to avoid those if you can. But then there are ones that we think are actually in quite strong positions. So I think a good example would maybe be the, the big banks, or actually most of the banks in, in SA. So if we just use something like Standard Bank as an example, you know, it's paying like a 7, 7.5% dividend yield today. I think those earnings are very sustainable. So I don't think the banking sector is sort of massively, you know, over earning or earning too much profits. That for sure that it's very competitive. You've had you know, new players like Capitec come in, which have made life hard for them. But even with that, so, you know, the earnings have been pretty stable even throughout COVID. You know, the the share prices of the banks fell a lot because people were really worried what's going to happen to bad debts, all those things. But actually, the banks turned out to be fine. And and actually, we think even if if sort of things carry on and we just muddle along as a country without terribly exciting growth, I think the banks will be totally fine, right? So I think those those ones are, are, are completely fine. The The flip side or the counter example would be without sort of mentioning specific companies, but you can think of some industrial businesses in SA, you know, with all the challenges with load shedding, for example, um, and just all the normal structural issues we know about in SA. You know, some of those businesses might, some of them are good and they'll be around, but some some could, you know, face sort of very serious problems where actually the, the earnings is on a declining path. Great. And given you spoke about financials, now, Graham, I'm going to ask you to talk about financials in the offshore part, because that is, I would guess, part of the exposure uh, that you guys are finding attractive. And maybe the one concern that you, you hear about sustainability of financials yields is that there's... You know, there's still talk about us possibly entering into a recession globally, and typically banks aren't positively positioned in that type of environment. So how do you think about the broader macro risk, and how do you square that up relative to the opportunities you're finding in banks? We do have bank exposure. I mean, that probably sits in that old economy bucket that mm-hmm. I was discussing. They have suffered for a long time. With easy money has not been a tailwind for the banking sector. They benefit from a more rational environment. They benefit from higher rates. And, you know, we're starting to see that now. But our, typically our banks are not really about that. They're more idiosyncratic in nature. For example, there's a consolidation thesis around the Irish banking industry in Japan is um, going through its own interesting story in terms of corporate governance. And the banks are at the front end of that in terms of doing things that are much more capital efficient and unwinding cross shareholdings and whatnot. 
and and you pay a very very low price. Now, the macro risk is real, but I think it comes back to the, what I was talking about around what's the big cycle here,、mm. and what's the ripple. You know, the way I think about recessions is they come and go. They're the ripples, and you know, if you think about what is the definition of a recession, it's a few quarters of negative real GDP growth. If you sort of zoom out and you look over the very long term, you can hardly notice these things. You know, generally speaking, they don't have much long-term impact on the value of businesses, unless you know the business itself is over leveraged, they get into trouble, and all, and all these other things. So that's where we really focus on the banking side, the strength of the balance sheet, how、uh, robust has the lending been, how. Speculative has the borrowing been in terms of mortgages and, and corporate borrowing, and so that's you know that's where we do a lot of our work is to make sure the downside is is well covered, and then we don't worry too much about the ups and downs in the share price, which are driven by you know the ripples in the economy. So talking about balance sheets being able to withstand ups and downs in the economy, Tim, it's hard to think about SA equities at the moment and not think about what is quite an uncertain. Local backdrop. How do you think about the right allocation to South African equities or South African listed equities in, let's say, a balanced portfolio? Given you know, on the one hand they look very cheap,、uh, on the other hand you have you know a wide range of possible outcomes on the economic and political front. It's a tricky one. It's something we we constantly discussing and and debating. When you look at the South African equity landscape as a whole, shares on average. Or on low valuations, so that's you can look sort of across sectors. You know, companies are trading at pretty low valuations versus history. That doesn't necessarily mean they're cheap, right? It, there might be low valuations for a reason.、Mm-hmm. If things are going to be very tough, as we've kind of spoken about, so you definitely want to be selective, right? You, you wouldn't sort of just go out and, and buy every company in SA. You, you want to be selective and buy the ones that are going to survive and even maybe thrive in, in sort of a, a tough environment. But then there's also the question, as you as you raise, sort of okay, how much do you allocate to that? So if you think these shares are actually quite attractive, which which we do, so we we actually think the SA market should give you quite a decent return over the medium term. So let's say the next four or five years. But there are of course risks. So how much do you want to allocate in your balanced portfolio to that opportunity? On the one hand, you're looking at the return opportunity, but you're also thinking about the risks, and you know things could go wrong. So you, of of course you want to diversify your portfolio. So you know, at the moment in our balanced portfolio, we're sitting in sort of the low forties percent in SA shares. It's a reasonably big allocation, but with, of, of course, within that, a lot of those companies are not really SA companies, right? So that's a really important thing to to always keep in mind. So you've got businesses like British American Tobacco, Nasdaq. You know, we we call them SA shares if you look at the fact sheet, but they're global businesses, right? So those aren't really exposed to to the SA economy. So you always have to keep that in mind. And then maybe a last thing to just think about is what about exposure to other SA assets? So in your balanced portfolio, you know you you could also hold South African bonds or, or cash, and and that's somewhere we we actually quite different to many of our peers. So we have quite a low exposure to South African bonds. So we have a bit more in in shares, I think, than some of our peers, or, or maybe similar, but but quite a bit less. Exposure to SA government bonds, and there, obviously, you're also facing the same South African risks, right? So we've taken a view that we prefer holding the SA shares over the SA bonds, and you can sort of simplify that as why is that? 
in saying we think the risks are quite similar, but there's more upside on, on the shares. At least with shares, you're protecting yourself against inflation, for, for example. If your government bond is yielding 11.5% when inflation is, let's say, 5%, the market is telling you this is not risk-free, right? There are things that can go wrong. The government fiscal situation, as we all know, is not great. It, it could you know, conceivably deteriorate over the coming few years, in which case those bonds actually wouldn't be a great investment and you wouldn't earn your 11.5%. You'd, you'd be earning less than that. Um, so that's one consideration. Another one is inflation, which we think is, is definitely a risk that, that could come back. You know, if inflation is 10%, then 11.5% on a bond is not actually that great. But in that scenario, a company which can increase its prices and gives you some protection against inflation actually could still do reasonably well. So that's another reason why you, you might prefer shares over, over bonds. So, Tim, I just want to go back to how you were, you were talking about the right allocation to SA equities, and you noted that it was 40%. I mean, obviously, the flip side of that is what is the right allocation to offshore? And we're currently... As you said, 40% SA. How are we thinking about the right level of offshore in, say, a balanced portfolio, given our new limit is actually 45? Yeah, and in a way, the decision in the past was always very easy. So when, when the regulation said you could only have 25% offshore, or you know, more recently it was 30% offshore, it was always quite easy. We were typically close to that maximum 30% offshore because we, we always thought that was sort of the, the right level to have. Now, as, as you mentioned, the rules are you can have 45% offshore. So now you start you need to start thinking a little bit more carefully about it. So at the moment, we're sort of in the high 30s, close to 40%. So, so it has increased since the regulations have allowed us to take more money offshore. So we've given some of that extra money to Orbis and take advantage of, of some of the opportunities they're seeing. But we haven't gone completely to that maximum. And, and why is that? It's, it's basically because we think the SA assets are actually quite attractive. So we're not sort of rushing out. Um, at the margin, the, the level of the RAND and the exchange rate does play a little bit of a role. It's not, it's not the driving force in our decision, but it, it does play a little bit of a role. So we do think the RAND is towards the weaker end of maybe where it should be. So that's sort of, you know, tempering us, us a little bit in, in taking money offshore. Over the long term, you could maybe expect that offshore number to creep up a little bit. But I don't think it's sort of automatic anymore that you should, you know, just mm -hmm. have 45% offshore. And also just lastly, coming back to that point I made earlier, just always keep in mind some of your SA shares are actually global businesses, right? So the way I think about the balanced portfolio is I'm really sort of taking like a look through view, you know, if I, what, what am I actually exposed to here? And if you have that sort of look through view, you know, what is your actual foreign exposure? It's closer to two thirds of the portfolio, which I think for a typical kind of SA client where your expenses are in rand to a large extent, I think that's quite a good level of offshore exposure. I wanted to touch on uh, how you're thinking about managing that offshore allocation in a little bit more detail because obviously now that we've changed to 45%, while the majority of the investments will remain with Orbis, the Alan Gray investment team are making some direct investments to complement the overall portfolio positioning. So maybe you can give us an example of a share that we've invested directly and how you've thought about that relative to both the SA and uh, the offshore exposure within the Orbis funds. So it's, it's sort of easier, I think, to, to say what we're not doing. So we're not replicating what Orbis is doing, right? So we've got a team sitting in Cape Town looking at SA shares primarily. We look at what's happening around the world as well, and we analyze various global companies. But, but Orbis is obviously doing this exclusively, right? They've got offices around the world. They've got a bigger investment team than us. They're applying the same philosophy. There are lots of smart people at Orbis. So we trust them to, to invest the, the offshore portion of the portfolio. 
So really what we do want to do is tweak the foreign portion of our funds, so the, the portion invested with Orbis, where it could make sense to do that. When might we want to do that? You know, it could be that Orbis is looking around the world and let's just say hypothetically they thought emerging markets were extremely attractive and they had a big position in emerging markets. So it's not the case today, but, you know, that could, that could be the case and it has been in the past. So that might be great for their portfolio at a global level. But for our SA clients in Alan Gray portfolio, we're already living in an emerging market, right? So we might say, actually, hold on, we don't want that much emerging market exposure. We want to dial it down a little bit. So we might buy a few things just to offset that to some extent. So that's a kind of a scenario you could see happen. Something we have actually done recently, a more sort of practical one, is we own a lot of the leisure stocks in SA. So the hotel group, Sun International, Tocco, those kind of things. We think they're very cheap, those SA shares. We don't really want to increase our exposure to those individual companies, but we do think that that theme more broadly is quite attractive. So we've looked at some of the global operators, so hotel businesses like Marriott or Hilton, just to kind of understand the space a bit better, sort of understand the competitive dynamics and, and the trends that are happening globally. And we've also looked at Booking.com, who people you know might be familiar with if, you, if you're traveling overseas, sort of the, the website people use to, to book uh, hotels, especially in Europe, but, but across the world. So doing the research on those companies has been useful to help us understand the dynamics in the SA space. And we've also actually invested in two of those. So we've also invested in Marriott and Booking to increase the exposure to this theme where we don't really want to do so locally on, on the SA side. So I guess the approach is to combine both specialist capabilities in a way that makes sense for the mandate. If we look, though, Graham, at the offshore exposure, one of the interesting kind of increase in allocation over the last little while has been Japan. And Japan has been a kind of a region that Orbis has periodically found attractive. Sometimes I feel like it's been a little bit of a false dawn. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the opportunity in Japan from both an equity and a currency perspective, because it actually looks like both are potentially attractive. And what's different now relative to, let's say, 10 years ago? So we, we've been investing in Japan since 1990, since you know the global fund was started out. And we started our Japan fund in 1998. And it was interesting, in 1998, we thought, oh, interesting, you know, we've been in this long bear market in Japan now, things are starting to look good, good time to launch a Japan fund. And if you look at the performance <laughs> of the topic since then, it's I think it's done about 2% a year. You're only uh, 25 years early. That's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's early, not wrong. Um, that's right. So, But I mean, what's interesting is even though the Japan fund was launched in 98 and the market's been terrible, it's been a real stock picker's market. Mm. And the, t the, the team we have in Japan has managed to eke out sort of 6%, 7% extra return above the index over that period just because there's been plenty of opportunity on an absolute return basis, even though the market's been disappointing and weak. But throughout that whole period, you know, early 90s or 1998, whenever we started that fund, to today, uh, there's been one theme, and that has been the corporate governance and shareholder alignment has never quite been there in <laughs> Japan. For example, balance sheets in Japan, maybe as a hangover from the, the bubble in the late 80s, have been hugely overcapitalized, much, way too much cash sitting on those balance sheets, um, not doing a lot. So not, not non-productive cash, and that leads to low valuations. Uh, the business will also hold a lot of each other, shares in each other, which is relationship-based and historical. But again, it's not a good use from a capital efficiency perspective. If you think about an energy company owning shares in a, in a retailer, <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, you end up 
almost owning the index by owning a single share sometimes because they own so many other companies within the market. In 2015-16, we started with Abenomics, and that wasn't just monetary policy. People think of it in terms of monetary policy. There were a few more arrows there. Abe came in in Japan, and um, they put in place a few uh, areas of reform to improve not just economic growth, but also corporate governance. And one of the things that kind of goes a little bit under the radar was they put in place a stewardship code, which was there for management teams and corporations to, you know, a template for them to think about capital allocation, to think about uh, their own investment decisions. So it was really very helpful for foreign shareholders because we've been talking to Japanese businesses for years about how they can improve some of these things. And we feel like we've been getting somewhere a little bit, but it was nice to have uh, more of a kind of Japan Inc. government, central bank getting behind shareholders with, you know, some sensible measures. Even with that, though, over the last, you know, over the subsequent four or five years, we didn't see much change. We didn't see much movement. Uh, but very recently, the Tokyo Stock Exchange came out and said, you know, if companies don't address their very low valuations, a lot of them trade below their own book value, for example, generating very low returns on capital. Uh, if they don't raise their valuations above book value, there'll be some not tangible consequences, but it, it made it very explicit that they were thinking about that. And, and, and that's sort of set a little bit of a fire underneath the management teams in Japan. And well, we've, it's quite difficult given share prices are determined by demand from investors. That's Well, that's true. But I mean, uh, a lot of these valuations have been fairly rational because if you yeah. are not using your balance sheet properly and uh, therefore your return on capital isn't coming through as it should be, then it's rational to trade at low valuations. Mm -hmm. So these, it's really in the company's hands, in the, in the management team's hands. They really do have ways to improve their profitability and their margins that are actually not terribly difficult. It's just a question of getting over that hurdle of, okay, understanding capital efficiency. I mean, they're very good operators in Japan, exceptional on the industrial side, really good on the manufacturing side. But it's just that element of, of uh, what do they do with their capital and how do they manage their balance sheets a lot of the time. So this was, you know, set a little bit of a fire under Japan, under, the, under corporate Japan. And uh, our Japan team, they go out to Japan a few times a year, and they're having much more success in terms of management teams responding and listening and actually action happening, seeing now much higher dividends, so capital getting paid out, capital that's been sitting idle on balance sheets for decades, getting paid out to shareholders. That capital can then be used by shareholders to reinvest in areas of the market that they think you know, offer good growth and, and opportunity. So it's much more capital efficient for the economy as a whole, not just those businesses. And we're seeing cross-shareholding start to sort of unwind and, uh, and valuations are starting to move up. Uh, we're seeing companies actually start to talk on the earnings calls about things we've been talking about for years with the, these businesses. And so it's fabulous. And I think it's really good for growth in Japan. It's really good for the stock market. It's good for specific companies. And so it's a wonderful and exciting environment that we're seeing in that region. And uh, I think it could last. I think it has legs this time, famous last words. So what are the opportunities that we're finding in that environment? Maybe give us a few examples. There's a lot because there's a lot of businesses that are trading very, very cheap. And a little bit like in the US and in Europe and most places of the world, the valuation dispersion is very wide. So there's a huge gap between the very expensive shares and the very cheap shares. And those sh those businesses that have actually been doing better on the corporate governance side over the last 10 years trade very, very high. 
and the businesses that we're interested in trade very, very low, where you have a lot of free optionality in terms of change within those businesses. For example, there's a company called Impex, uh, which is uh, the largest energy company in Japan. And uh, Japan is not a, com uh, a country rich in resource, unlike South Africa. And so they need natural resources, they need energy, so the trading businesses and, and the energy businesses are very important for that, that, that economy. Impex is a natural, natural gas business, really. Like many companies in Japan, you know, they haven't been paying out a lot of their free cash flow in terms of dividends. The growth prospects aren't high. This is a fossil fuel business, right? It's not declining, but it's going to be very, very slow going over, over the next sort of 30, 40 years. And so it's rational for them to pay out much more of their free cash flow in terms of dividends. Uh, they haven't been doing that, and they have recently started to up that. Now you're getting actual yield coming out of that business in the order of 13%, if you sort of translate that into dollars, and that's that's pure cash yield coming out of that business. Uh, and it has inflation-protected growth on there. It's not a high-growth business. But if you can take 13% as a return versus a 7% return for the World Index, 8% return over the last 30, 40 years, and that return from the World Index has been not just cash yield, that's growth, that's risk, right? You, you took a lot of risks to find that uh, that 8%, whereas in Impex you have a real cash return in dollars in, in the low teens. So uh, we think that's really interesting from a risk perspective and a return perspective as well. So I'm just looking at the global equity geographic positioning, and so obviously we're about double the weight of the index in Japan, which is not obviously our starting point. It's a, a bottom-up driven uh, positioning. The currency exposure is around 17% of the portfolio. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the yen and why that's undervalued or why you would consider that to be a better store of value relative to, let's say, the dollar. Yeah, so currency is a tricky beast. Whereas in the likes of Inpex, you own the shares, you're getting a nice dividend yield out of that, you've got a, an idea of how quickly they might grow, you can put an expected return on it, and you'd expect the shares to re-rate on the basis of that high yield. You've got a tangible value below the price you're paying. With a currency, it's much more intangible. What is a currency really worth? Uh, so that's where you know we don't we don't take big positions in currencies typically because they're very unpredictable. They tend to trend for long, long periods of time. What's interesting about the last sort of 10 years in particular is monetary policy around the world has been very similar. You know, everybody's been following very, or very, very similar policies in terms of being very easy, mostly in Europe, Japan, the US. Developed world. Developed world, yeah, okay, that's true. But today we're seeing a divergence for the first time since really 2005-ish, when it, in fact it was Japan in 2005, 2006, you and I, Tamarin, Tamarin, will remember at Orbis having a long position in the yen around that time as well. And that was on the basis that uh, monetary policy was quite divergent at that point. And that sent the yen to very, very cheap levels. And you can tell the yen is cheap just on the basis if you, if you went to Japan today, maybe not if you took your South African rand, but if you, <laughs> if you, if you took your US dollar Nothing to looks Japan. cheap when we take our <laughs> South African <laughs> rand. If you took your US dollar and you went to Japan today, you would be able to eat at a five-star sushi restaurant very, very cheaply. And so a lot of people are. Tourism is starting to boom. And that's where you get that that uh, corrective mechanism. You start to see industrial production being set up in Japan because the currency is cheap. You start to see tourists coming in, buying yen, buying things in yen. And that sort of is, is a little bit of a, you know, a mean reverting mechanism. But you know, it's the combination 
of the cheap equity, the corporate governance changes, the valuation dispersion in Japan, and the cheap currency, put them all together as a group, you know, as a, as a, as a sort of whole package. And uh, I think that's what we're seeing from the bottom up and is driving that overweight we're seeing in both the currency and in the equity. And, and while we're talking about uh, regions, obviously the area that we've spoken about over the past few years that appears overvalued relative to its own history on many fundamental measures uh, and obviously driven by a few large shares is the U.S., uh, but the U.S. is a pretty broad market. So when you look at the U.S. market, where are the pockets of opportunities today? So there's been a narrative, and I think there's some truth to it, that the U.S. is expensive. And when people say that, I think they look at it on a market cap weighted basis, number one, and they look at it from the holistic perspective rather than actually sort of tearing apart what's in that market. If you go and you look down the market cap spectrum and you look at a business in the US that is a similar business to a business in Europe, maybe a similar business to a business in Japan. As we go through that exercise, for example, let's look at an, uh, an aluminum or aluminium business like Alcoa. In, it's based in the US. You can compare that to a European equivalent in Europe, Norse Kidro. There's a similar business in Australia, which is more on the bauxite side, called Illumina. You know, they're, they're doing the same thing and they have the same drivers. We don't see a big valuation difference, so I don't think there is an overvaluation of U.S. shares because they're listed in the U.S. in some way. I think what we are seeing is a dislocation in the market along the lines of growth versus value or duration, and that is you know that thing we talked about with the free mm. cash flow of the long term being mispriced. And the U.S. is a you know it's a dynamic entrepreneurial growth oriented market, which is very shareholder friendly. All those wonderful things. And I think that does drive high return on capital and good performance over the long term. Uh, but it also leads to, you know, a lot of, because there are a lot more growthy businesses there and they, they tend to be trading too high, in our opinion, versus the businesses we're getting a lot of free cash flow out of those, you know, out. That uh, makes the U.S. look a little bit more expensive. So we're seeing opportunity in the U.S. We are underweight because we're seeing opportunity elsewhere as well. But it doesn't mean that there's no opportunities within that market. So outside of kind of the names you've mentioned, how would you, you know, summarize the opportunity set in the U.S. that we're finding attractive at the moment? I think it's probably a little bit down the cap spectrum. Uh, we're not in the very, very large stocks. And that's not to say, I mean, people point out, what was your phrase, the Magnificent Seven, there's always some different phrase for the big stocks in the U.S. Um, we don't think in, in the main they are overvalued. I mean, there are some, I think, that are a little bit egregious, but the likes of a Google or a Microsoft or an Amazon look okay to us. But okay is not what we're going for. We're going for finding truly mispriced businesses, and so we're finding more of those down in that kind of mid-cap spectrum. An example might be a business like Westlake, which is a very high-quality materials business, making PVC for houses and, and guttering and all the rest of it. The feedstock, the energy feedstock is critical to you know the margins of those businesses mm. historically europe has got a nice cheap energy source from russia through natural gas now that's obviously changed and, and they're going to be getting it from the us and qatar and, and and you have to pay all the transport costs the liquefaction costs getting shipping it over all the rest of it so the relative competitiveness of a westlake versus peers has changed so that drives the cost curve steeper 
And also their feedstock is cleaner in terms of carbon. So in, in China, they use coal as a feedstock and as an energy source to crack the hydrocarbons to make the PVC, which is really dirty. So they're on the carbon spectrum, really, really costly and also more expensive. And then in Europe, somewhere in the middle. And then in the US, they're clean, cleaner, natural gas. And it's uh, much easier to crack those hydrocarbons. You need less energy, so it's much more efficient. So Westlake trading at only 10 times earnings, in the, which is quite extraordinary for a well-managed business that's well-positioned because of the concerns over the recession and, and housing and, and these sorts of things, end markets. You know, you can buy a very good, solid, long-term compounder uh, for a very cheap price, on the, uh, which is sitting low on the cost curve where that cost curve is changing. Therefore, the pricing should be higher over time of the products that they sell. So it feels like we can't uh, talk about the essay positioning without talking about a resources, which has obviously always been a material driver of the SA market, and some of our energy names. So how do you evaluate, you know, what are good opportunities uh, in that backdrop? Yeah, so the way we look at it, um, as with, with all sectors, is, is very much bottom up. So we're not, for example, in, in our Alan Gray funds, we're not starting top down and saying we want so much in financial, so much in resources, because we think China is going to do this or that. That's not how we approach things. So we're starting very much bottom up company by company. And and what that means is you could have very different dynamics in different sectors. So the comment you're alluding to is really talking about the platinum miners, which are obviously mm. quite a sort of significant part of, of the SA market. So that's a market where, you know, the last two years, those companies were making really high profits. So, the, you know, platinum, palladium, rhodium prices were very high. Those companies were extremely profitable. We saw a lot of M&A or mergers of acquisitions, you know, or attempted M&A going on in the sector with uh, Northern and Impala and Royal Buffer King, which is often the telltale sign that you're sort of in the, you know, the good times. And that's properly reversed, right? Those, those metal prices have come down a lot. And sort of rough estimate today, probably like two-thirds of the, the platinum miners are actually loss-making at current prices. So we've seen a big reversal. So we we underweight those shares. We don't have big positions. We do own some of them. It's something we're looking at more closely. We haven't sort of been, you know, buying aggressively in for the, for the platinum miners because I, I think in the short term things could actually get a bit worse before before it gets better. Why do you say that? If we look at the previous cycle, you know, things can take quite a while, right? So platinum is a is a weird sector in that it's really only SA and Russia and a little bit the US, which are material producers. So it's a very concentrated supply base. And then if you think, what is you know what are these metals actually used for? So they go into cars and your exhaust pipes to clean up emissions, and a little bit of jewellery, and you know that's pretty much it. So it's a very concentrated demand side as well, which do does mean you, it can be quite cyclical, and these cycles can last quite a while. So the previous down cycle lasted sort of you know five odd years, um, and we're about a year into a down cycle now, and these things can take time, and they they've added reasons to be worried, right? So. A big one is electric vehicles. If the whole world switches to electric vehicles, we don't really need as much platinum, and especially palladium anymore. Um, and sort of the pace at which that happens is, is quite an important consideration in, in what you think is going to happen to those metal prices. But then you look at other sort of resources companies and the dynamics could be very different, mm. right? So so we own Glencore, for example, is a share we've had in the portfolio for a while um, which we quite like, and we like their mix of metals. So they're a big copper producer, for example. They also produce some other metals which you need for batteries, which we just spoke about, which is going to be important in the future. So things like nickel and cobalt, for example. So so we quite like that company for, for a variety of reasons. But then you think of some of the other big miners we have in the SA index, 
So things like Anglo-American and, and BHP Billiton. So they have a very different mix of commodity exposures. So especially iron ore is, is quite big for both of those businesses. And with iron ore, the story is really all about China. So China consumes more than half the world's iron ore. A lot of that goes into building buildings. And, and people may be aware of what, what kind of been, has been happening in China the last two years. Is it's really been quite a, quite a slowdown in building activity. And they haven't really bounced back after COVID as people expected. There's been this property bubble. There's too much debt in China. So, so all kinds of things that you might be worried about there. So those businesses, we have basically no exposure. So, so quite, a, quite a different story. And you can go through the other commodities and kind of each one is different. And you have to look at each one kind of separately and really understand what, what are the dynamics for, for that specific kind of sub-industry. But let's say talking about exposure to China, we, we do, while we're underweight, we do have an allocation to NASPES and, and obviously indirectly to Tencent. So how do we think about uh, the kind of the attractiveness of that, given the concerns you've described? The past few years, there was this crackdown on, you know, in terms of regulation on technology businesses in China, which is sort of all those businesses, Tencent and Alibaba, et cetera, came under sort of massive pressure, due, you know, largely due to that. Um, I think that's sort of mostly washed out now, and we're sort of at the other end of that. But now they're facing other challenges, just the, the general kind of slowdown in the economy, consumers having less money. So there, there's sort of some pros and cons there. We do like the business, but it is a big position in the index. But then maybe the, the even more important point to think about is just what is our overall exposure to China? So yes, you know, NASPAS and Tencent is a sort of a big Chinese exposure, but the SA economy and the SA market has a lot of China exposure overall. So I mentioned Anglo-American Billiton. Those are big mining companies in SA. They sell a lot to China. If we think about Richmond, you know, the, the luxury goods business, a lot of those goods get sold into China or to Chinese consumers. So if you kind of go through the list of the big SA businesses and, and you know, just look at SA exports, for example, you know, we've got serious exposure to China. So we always think about at a portfolio level, how do we manage that? Because we do, we do have some concerns about you know, the, the Chinese economy and, and demand from that side. So it's always useful to have big things in the portfolio which don't have China exposure. So, so British American Tobacco would be one. It's a big global business. It has no Chinese exposure. Anheuser Bush would be another one, the beer business. It has very little Chinese exposure, but exposure to sort of other global markets. So it's nice having those kind of things in the portfolio, which you know we like them on a standalone basis, and they also bring a, a nice diversification element into the portfolio by sort of lowering our overall China risk. And Graham, maybe can you add your perspective on China? Because while you were talking earlier about the attractiveness of certain emerging markets uh, and obviously certain Asian markets, you've actually got virtually no exposure to China directly in the portfolio today, whereas a couple of years ago it would have been higher. We, we could spend an hour, we spend a day talking about China. So I, I would make the distinction between the bottom up and the top down. Mm-hmm. So the, we do own some some shares in China and uh, I think there are always in such a big deep market opportunities. So you shouldn't discount it, number one. I would say it's difficult though, and it's difficult for all the reasons everyone else is worried about. Uh, there's a big ideological, political differences between the way the US is run, the West is run generally, and the way China is run. And that leads to risk on both sides. And if you get into very meaningful disagreements between uh, you know, the West and China, then it's not only China you need to worry about, it's the West in terms of sanctioning and, and uh, mm. the Western investors being able to hold Chinese assets. 
So I think there's a lot of risk there that's hard to quantify. The other element to it is we've always we've been looking at China for years and thinking they're going to rebalance the economy in terms of uh, more support for consumers. It's been a kind of mercantilist society which exports, right? It produces and it exports. And the view has been that eventually, like like the US, like the UK, you know, back in the day, it will transition to more a consumer-based economy where it, it'll be more service-driven. And for that, you need a bigger social safety net for consumers. And I think it's becoming clear that that is not in the ideology of the Chinese leadership. And there's been certain articles coming out over the last few months that are sort of semi-confirming that China wants people to be industrious. It wants the country to work. It's not going to put big welfare checks to people like we're seeing in the US and and uh, and, and Europe, which is a double-edged sword, I think. Right? You could say that's a positive thing. It's also a little bit negative in terms of rebalancing their economy. And if they're not going to go down that way, then they're going to continue on the current path. And the current path is keeping the currency fairly weak, producing, exporting, self-supplying as much as they possibly can, which means you know more coal and and uh, you know whatever natural resources they can pull out of the ground domestically and within friendshoring. And that leads to more friction, right? Because this is what the U.S. has an issue with: all the uh, subsidized production of stuff in China. And if that continues, then you get more and more friction between the two countries. And that leads to more risk in terms of sanctions and trade wars and, and, uh, and it's more inflationary. And so I think it's a lot of risk, tons of risk, uh, but it's also really contrarian. <laughs> and the shares are down a lot. Um, and so to ignore it completely, I think is naive. And I think, uh, so we do luck there. We have a team based in Hong Kong and we're always poking around trying to find great ideas. And great companies, well, gov- well-governed companies, where we think the risk is lower. And how do how does the SA team and the Orbis team collaborate on names like Naspers or Tencent, which you know have been owned by both teams, where China is an important part of both respective universes? Maybe you can give us an example of how you guys work uh, on a more day-to-day basis. Yeah, Naspers is a nice example in that it's it's obviously extremely important for us given the size and the local market. So we do our research on it. We look at Tencent very closely. We look, we've looked at other Chinese businesses just doing our own research, trying to understand the competitive landscape there. But then it's also very useful for me to be able to speak to my colleagues at Orbis in Hong Kong, who, you know, they live in the country, they know it very well, they look at lots of other businesses. So it's, it's very useful to be able to bounce ideas off them, ask them what they think, sort of get their perspective, which might, might be different to ours. So that's that's definitely useful. That's That's been very fruitful. And it goes for other sectors as well. Orbis has this team in Hong Kong looking at emerging markets. But even if we think of some of the dual-listed businesses in SA, so something like Anheuser-Busch, the, you know, the big global beer business. So we've got this one beer business listed in SA, which you know we quite like. We think it's quite cheap. But we obviously have to look at the others as well to kind of get a relative sense of, you know, how are they valued? You know, what's happening with competition? And and that's also again where it's it's quite useful leaning on Orbis's research. They've looked at Heineken, Carlsberg, they've owned some of them at times. Recently they actually looked at Anheuser Busch as well. So it's nice getting their perspective or even just other consumer staples. So, you know, we think Anheuser Busch is cheap, but would we weighing it up versus essay businesses? So it's useful to ask our colleagues at Orbis, you know, how how do you think about this versus other global consumer staple businesses? Does it actually look cheap or is it sort of just average? And Graham, how would you describe the collaboration from your guy's side? Yeah, it works both ways, both in terms of 
lean uh, if we're looking at South African shares, right? How, well, there's no way we, we could have the level of expertise that uh, Alan Gray have, and so we lean heavily on their work and on their their views. And in terms of you know if you're looking at South African competitors or peers of businesses we're looking at elsewhere, uh, so there's many many meetings and policy group meetings that we have where we have people from both teams sitting in and, and sharing expertise. I think that's been extremely valuable and uh, I think the step taken for um, Alan Gray to spend a little bit more time on global businesses is extremely positive uh, because you know you're just pooling more and more smart people into thinking about where the right places to invest are globally and the next sort of five to ten years should be very exciting. If I gave you a million rand, Tim, and a million dollars, Graham, where, <laughs> I only get a million rand. <laughs> where would you? And if I told you you could not sell it for five years, where would you put it? I would go for five years with the Ellinger SA Equity Fund. So it's yeah, it's I think SA shares are attractive. I think you can get quite a quite a nice return. It's it's probably a bit higher risk than something like the balanced fund because as we spoke about there are risks in SA and things could go wrong but on average yeah I think we when we're doing our bottom-up work on SA shares we, we're finding lots of things that we're quite excited about. I note Tim's home bias <laughs> <laughs> and I will apply my own home bias so I am divided in the way I'm allocating capital between market neutral strategies like optimal I think it's quite important to have strategies in there that don't carry overall market risk, given I think the monetary policy is going to get tighter, generally speaking, over the next sort of five to ten years, and that's going to be a headwind. So it's helpful to have some differentiated uh, you know, source of return in there. But also, on an absolute basis, home bias, you know, funds like Global and International carry a lot of investments which you, know, you can see the tan like like the impacts example you can see the tangible cash flow coming out of that business you know how much you pay that's cash in your pocket today in terms of yield and it's high and uh, so you know even though I worry about markets you can still find return tangible return which is comfortably above what markets have historically done. <laughs> so that sort of a little bit of a dichotomy keeps me from being too conservative and uh, and certainly owning funds like international and global, I think, uh, should be good investments over time. Okay, that's home, great. Home I, bias. I know both your home <laughs> biases, but they certainly sound like convicted views. Great. So I'm going to end off with asking you both uh, one question which you might groan, but which is a question that comes up in... Uh, almost every single client presentation I have. What do you think the role of artificial intelligence will be in investing over the next five to ten years? Uh, I'm not going to grow. I think that's a very relevant, reasonable question. Maybe this is a cliche. Maybe most people say this, but uh, we have been investing in AI for many, many years, and it's mostly on the quant side. On the screening side, we've been we we use AI models, and we've been using it on the investment insight side, where we have a team that's very, very data intensive and try to answer specific investment questions related to certain industries for or working in collaboration with a covering analyst. And so we have we have expertise, I'd say we have four or five people within the firm who have strong expertise in this field and, and a couple of them had PhDs specifically uh, you know, in, in the area of machine learning and artificial intelligence. We're not throwing tons of capital at it because the way we come at uh, 
all of these problems is how can we improve what we do? And if machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques are relevant for a specific task, we will apply them and we will continue to do that. So that's, uh, you know, that's how I see uh, the role that any kind of technology plays in what, uh, in, within our firm. And I think of it in three buckets. One is efficiency, helping us manage our time better. The other is insight. How can you sort of find new insights within companies, within regions, within economies? And the third is in decision-making. How can we, you know, if you have the efficiency and you have all the data you need and the insight, how do you make good decisions off the back of that? So in each of those three categories, you know, we may, we, we have been applying artificial intelligence, machine learning, and we'll continue to do so where it's relevant. So I think there are a few ways you, you can think about it. The one is, you know, should we just not have portfolio managers and investment teams at all? You know, why don't you just get the AI uh, model to pick the stocks for you? So that's an approach you, you could follow. But I see that as sort of just an extension of a quant type style of investing. So by that, I mean, you know, people have been having doing these approaches for, for many decades where you have more formulaic type of investing. So you're not looking at individual stocks, you've got some formula or some model, and you're using that to pick individual stocks. And that's a different way of, of investing to, to what we do at Alan Gray. And I think if that is your approach of, an, of, of, of investing, then you definitely should be looking at AI, or you know, it could definitely make sense to, to investigate AI. Um, but I would contrast that with how we invest at Alan Gray, which is way more fundamental focus. So looking at the the, the intrinsic value of businesses and and less sort of just focused on using a top down kind of formula type type approach. Yeah, we I probably still have a job for a few years. Um, I, I do think there could be opportunities on doing things more efficiently, so sort of more as a tool in in work. Um, the, sort of Graham alluded to some of the things they're doing at Orbis. And they're definitely ahead of us in that curve. To some extent, there's a bit less of a need. So Orbis look at, you know, at 5,000 stocks globally. So you need to be doing some screening and you need some tools to help you those kind of, do those kind of things efficiently. So there's a bit less of a need for that in SA. But it doesn't mean it wouldn't be useful to have sort of AI help you find data, just do kind of day-to-day -day tasks more efficiently. And then the last area... I think that we've probably thought the most about or we definitely will spend more time thinking about is, is how does AI affect existing businesses? So you can, the one, if you think AI is exciting and it's going to be a big deal, you could invest in AI companies. Uh, you know, that's one approach. They, they seem quite expensive to me and they're not any of those in SA. So it's not sort of a primary focus. But the, other, the flip side of that is who are the losers, right? You know, what's going to happen to existing mm -hmm. businesses? How are they going to be disrupted by 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 AI. So that's something we're thinking about a lot. And I think for any business you're investing in, you need to think, you know, what is that risk? And for some businesses, there might be no risk because you're digging something out of the ground and AI has no impact on that. But for some, there might be very big impacts, right? So then you definitely want to think, you know, is, is my sort of valuation and my forecast still appropriate for, for this business? So that's, I think, the area where we'll probably be spending the most time. So that brings us to the end of episode 13. Thanks to Tim and Graham for joining us for what was a really interesting conversation. We talked about a number of things, including the environment that we find ourselves in both locally and offshore, 
and the opportunities that we are finding attractive in those respective environments. And finally, how the two teams are working together to find the best opportunities to put on the portfolio on your behalf. This podcast is available wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to be notified of all our new episodes. Lastly, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the terms and conditions and to explore our latest insights and investment offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Tamarin Lam, and this podcast was produced by Volume.